This is an RNZ podcast. A quick warning. This podcast includes allegations of child sexual abuse, so listener discretion is advised. If any of the details are triggering, please talk to someone. If you're in New Zealand, you can call or text 1737 to speak with a trained professional. Well, the whole thing revolts me for starters. Throughout 1992, the police would call Peter Ellis and his lawyer Rob Harrison in to watch videos of the children Peter had once cared for, describing pretty horrific abuse. Abuse, they said, was carried out by him. I mean, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. The th- thought is repugnant. It, re- it revolts me, quite frankly, to even hear it, to hear some of the words that are said. Peter Ellis and Rob Harrison would be escorted to a room inside the child abuse unit's Colombo Street offices. I shudder. I just literally feel ill. I'm thinking, that that's actually being aimed at me. I'm... I'm being accused of that. And people that have known me all my life, they they know it's not true. It's just not in me to do things like that. This is Conviction, a podcast about the Christchurch Civic Crash case. I'm Ali Jones. And I'm Alexander Beza, and this is episode six, Spikehead, Stupidhead and Boulderhead. When children are that little, they don't, you know, they don't use language and they don't have the same sort of concepts as we do. My daughter, like all children, has a good imagination, but there's nothing in her life experience that can imagine talking about other men doing things to her. They go off into fantasy land and start talking about flying on elephants. Things like we took him to a cemetery and made him dig up Jesus and stab him in the forehead. I mean, for God's sake. Over the last 30 years, the children's evidence has been picked over and pulled apart time and time again. It's been scrutinised and debated. And that's because it was so critical to the case. No adults came forward to say they'd seen Peter abusing children. There was no definitive physical evidence of abuse, nor was there any DNA to tie Peter to any crimes, or anyone else for that matter. There was only the children's testimony and some circumstantial evidence to back it up. In the previous episode, we heard about the issues around parental contamination, the risk of implanted memories, long and repeated interviews, and the use of anatomically correct dolls. But another problem people had with what the children were saying was just the absolutely bizarre nature of some of the claims. They just seemed, well, far-fetched. We'd cooked um, someone in a microwave, or cooked a kitten in a microwave. Marie picked up and threw a chair. We'd buried a child and, um, and you know, this child didn't exist. And out of the blue, it wasn't only Peter Ellis being accused. Gay Davidson, the crash supervisor, so Peter's boss, was accused as well of what's become known as the circle incident. This was one of the allegations that led people to believe the abuse was ritualistic. Adults were said to have danced in a circle around naked children before making them kick each other in the genitals and perform other indecencies. We took them to a, the swimming pool and left them there. Um, Peter drove them, he doesn't drive. Um, one child was came through my roof of, the, um, of my office, which is concrete, in a cage. He was lowered through the roof. Um, being in a big group and naked with tin cans around our neck, playing instruments, getting the kids to hit each other. It just it was really nuts. 
Gay as well as teachers Marie Keyes and Jane Buckingham were all implicated. The boy who first brought up the circle incident was Bart. Remember, we're not using the children's real names. They're permanently suppressed. We're using the pseudonyms given by Lindley Hood in her book A City Possessed. Whether you agree with what Hood writes or not, it does help us keep the children straight. Now, Bart was five or six when he was interviewed in 1992. And through several interviews, he made some quite striking claims. He said he'd been made to eat poop, that Peter had put his penis up his bum and that it felt ticklish, that he'd had needles inserted into his penis, and that other men and someone called Robert had also been cruel to crazed children. Bart also claimed Peter had dressed up as a witch and as a judge and threatened to change him into a frog and send him to jail if he'd told, and that children had been put down a trapdoor into a maze where Peter's friend, Spikehead, Stupidhead and Boulderhead were all present. He said Peter Ellis's mother, Leslie, had given him a poisonous drink and that he'd been put into an oven to bake and that a child called Andrew had been killed. I mean, it does sound made up, I guess, imaginary, doesn't it? Why were the kids saying these things? And actually, why didn't experts in sexual abuse just dismiss it as utter nonsense? In my work involved in this field, I've always focused on the adults Previously, we heard from Barry Parsonson talking about the reliability of children's memories. Because I think the adults are in a position where they interview a child and go through things with them uh, in such a way that they can cause the child to become more firmly entrenched in the belief that something's happened to them when it may not have. He's a clinical psychologist and one of the few people to have seen the full, unedited videos of the children's testimony. I mean, part of the problem is that if a child is very young, they may not have a meaningful or accurate memory for what has happened. And we know now that false memories can be implanted. Parsonson has a number of concerns about parental contamination and how the interviews were conducted, and he doesn't believe the children's evidence is reliable. Well, actually, Peter used to call the little swimming paddling pool that they had at the centre, he used to call that the Centennial Pool because that was the name of the major swimming location in Christchurch. So it's no wonder that some of these children assumed that you know, they'd been taken to certain places. Many of the allegations involved the children being taken away from the creche and abused at various sites around the city, like the Park Royal Hotel, the Masonic Lodge, and even at Peter's own home oh, and the Centennial Pool. Back then, Peter Ellis told TV3 reporter Melanie Reed his thoughts on where these allegations came from. One child mentioned a house that I lived in seven or eight years ago. I mean, he wouldn't even be born. Their ideas must have come from somewhere, though. Why would these kids be talking about, you know, specific houses and sexual things at two, three, four years old? Well, for starters, the parents took those children to those houses. That The police told them, that is where I lived once. And the children were taken to, well, is this Peter's house? Um, I have been told that the police have actually driven children all over town in a police car. Parsonson heard similar stories and suggests parental involvement may have influenced a lot of the children's claims. You know, one of the mothers drove her son around the city to point out different parts of the 
city to which Peter had taken them, like the Masonic Lodge and other sorts of things. So believing these children, without knowing what was going on in the background, both in terms of parental involvement and also the imagination that the children were displaying, meant that some of this material that they were presenting as evidence was simply not true. Barry Parsonson also has some ideas about why the children might have come up with some of their more fanciful allegations. But, you know, with going to the movies occasionally, one of the films that he saw was Hook. Looky, looky, I got hooky. And in Hook, you know, people were put in cages and hauled up and this sort of thing. Um, and, and a lot of that seems, you know, there was pirates involved, there's, there's cages, there's those sorts of things come into it and you can just see that if you've seen this in a film you can easily transfer it into your imagination as being something that, that that's happened in a in another place does winston send you that copy of the muppets thing this is zoe she worked at the civic crash for more than a decade and no i didn't receive the muppets thing I had it for you, but I just bought a house this week. Unfortunately, the video seemed to have gone missing in the move. That was amazing, that Muppets. I used to have it for my little grandson. And this girl, she's... Because the Muppets were usually fun, but this one, she's dressed up as a, um, a young sort of teenager and she's got one tooth blackened out. And they, they say they'll invite you in and they'll put you in the oven and they'll put you down a chute and all this sort of thing. Very similar to what we were accused of. So whether that was in the children's minds, I don't know. From when I was arrested in 92 on my birthday, right up to around about October, so six months I've been seeing children's interviews and hearing the dreadful things. You had the witches thing scenario. Was it a vase was on? You know? None of the kids wanted to play the witch, so, you know, I, I just said, you know, Debbie, you've got the nose for it, you be the witch. I didn't say that out loud, did I? No one really disagrees that the children's stories sounded outlandish, but a lot of the experts say you need to look deeper, that how children tell their story is not as important as what they're saying. Remember Dr Deirdre Brown, she's a memory specialist from Victoria University. A burning stick up my bottom might be a way of trying to express that it, it was something was put up my bottom and it was painful and had a burning feeling. Um, and so when I think about you know what I see on TV or in cartoons or whatever, maybe it was a burning stick. That's one way we could interpret that. The other way is that um, is, is that it, it's children in fantasy land. Sarah Crane, the psychotherapist who counsels some of the crash families, echoes Dr. Brown's points about how such young children communicate. When children are that little, they don't, you know, they don't use language and they don't have the same sort of concepts as we do. And so when they were talking about play, I mean, everything was mixed up together. But she says the kind of play she saw in her counselling session with the children was disturbing. 
But the children's play, I don't, I mean, it was, it was pretty weird, some of it. And a lot of the play was to do with wanting to be safe and, you know, making little nests. Often they played in quite small ways using my doll's house and things like that. I mean, I felt quite concerned and worried about them. So the idea is that rather than these movies and TV shows implanting memories, the children use the language of these imaginary worlds to describe their own real world, especially the scariest parts of it. Yeah, there's plenty of experts on that, and I'm not one, about children using available ways to describe things. Now this is the woman we're calling Rose. You'll remember she's the aunt of a child at the creche who accused Peter Ellis of abuse, and she still does. Her family sees those fairy tale elements, you know, the ovens, the witches and all of that, in terms of the language that's available to the children at the time to describe things they found frightening. Available to them might be, yeah, their metaphors are going to be what's available, their descriptors are going to be what's available, and their uh, vocab, and their kind of um, range, storytelling range vocab uh, is going to be, of course, influenced by where they get their language from. But yeah, as I say, it, it doesn't change the hair-raising reality of what it was like for families in Whānau, wider Whānau. I wasn't able to speak directly to Bart's mother, but I found this clip in a 1995 episode of TVNZ's Current Affair show Assignment, and she completely rejects this idea that the kids were making up stories based on what they'd seen on TV or at the movies. Why would a child come up with such horrific detail in their fantasy world. I don't believe that our child lives his life through fantasy. It was very real. And when a child is lying on a couch in a fetal position, spewing and um, not entirely with us as he was talking, showed me that it was genuine, it was real. And a lot of parents couldn't imagine how their preschool children could be talking about penises, oral sex, sticks and bums, sexualised stories they'd know nothing about unless something awful had been going on. Here's Carrie's mother in 1993 from TV3's 2020 programme. My daughter, like all children, has a good imagination, but there's nothing in her life experience that can imagine talking about other men doing things to her or eating poos or having a penis put up a bottom. It just, she'd never hear about it. And you don't imagine things like that. It's impossible. I can't imagine things like that. So there's no way that a five or six year old can. Everyone wondered the same thing. So in the same program, Melanie Reed put the question to Peter Ellis. How has it happened that you have ended up having allegations against you that are horrendous? Needles and anuses, penises and mouths, uh, making children eat feces. Well, the whole thing revolts me for starters. Do you agree, though, that children, as a rule, don't know about sexual things? Well, I would have thought not. I would have thought that children wouldn't know, but I'm now... I am just starting to wonder what... I mean, it depends on, on their home. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to have come from the Civic Child Care Centre. I mean, in fact, I know it didn't come from the Civic Child Care Centre. Children have got retentive minds, and if they're questioned sufficiently and long enough, 
and depending on what questions they were asked, then they're going to hold some of those thoughts in mind. And then when they get asked a question by an interviewer, they've been given those thoughts, those questions. And in that case, they've been given it by their parents. There are studies that show that children, you know, incorporate information from overheard conversations into their own accounts as if that information was something they experienced or heard directly. This is Dr Deirdre Brown again. And over time, the children may come to believe those things. They may feel very real. They may feel very convinced that this is what happened. Um, particularly if along the way they've been reinforced for that. You know, you did a great job today answering those questions. Well done, you know. You've been a brave girl or a brave boy and that was, you know, a good job. And so then the message is, oh, okay, so what I said today is the thing I meant to say. I'll say it again next time I'm asked. Now she says generally children's disclosures can be trusted. If the explicit information came about through a spontaneous disclosure, so the child's offering it up without any kind of prompting or questioning, we, we might be more confident of its accuracy. So what she's saying is that a spontaneous disclosure is more believable. Yeah, but there's another way to look at this. Remember Michael Salter, the Australian criminologist? Well, for most of us, these stories about trapdoors and kittens and microwaves and the like, they make us think that the children must be imagining things, right? Well, Salter quotes a study by the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children. In 1997, they published a study uh, in which they took a series of substantiated child sexual abuse investigations. And the outcome of the study was actually that children who made so-called bizarre disclosures or unbelievable disclosures, that these were children that had been subject to more severe child sexual abuse and actually corroboration was more likely to be evident in cases with so-called bizarre disclosures than in other cases. His point is that adults offending against children is bizarre. Now, for a three or four or five-year-old child who's subject to, I think what we can agree is torture, there is no right way for them to disclose what they've been through. They don't have the capacity to make sense out of that kind of behaviour. I mean, we would struggle to make sense out of it as adults. So we need to put children's disclosure in the context of their limited psychological development and to view so-called bizarre disclosure as evidence that the child is just fantasising. To take that as a default position is very dangerous. In part, he says, because what preschooler imagines being abused? The suggestion that children's fantasy life or imagination includes fantasies of sexual violence and being sexually victimised is a, an extraordinary proposition. To complicate things further, the stories of the crash kits kept changing. In just one interview, Curry said that she was abused lots of times, once a day, and only on Mondays and Fridays. When five-year-old Bart was asked why he didn't mention the circle incident until in his later interviews, he said, oh, I just remember today. Yeah, and as we've said, these discrepancies could just be put down to the fact that we're dealing with, you know, really young kids, five, six, seven, eight-year-olds. The problem is the police relied heavily on the word of those young children, really young children, when they laid charges against Peter Ellis. 
Having heard everything laid out over the last couple of episodes, the contamination, leading questions, the risk of implanted memories, even if we can't dismiss children just because they're children, can we trust what these children said? But it wasn't just what they were saying, Alex. Their families say it was also how they were behaving. In 2022, one complainant child, who'd be in her 30s now, appeared in a New Zealand Herald podcast. And she says in that that she began to hate going to the creche and leaving her mother. Here an actor reads her words. And I can remember just screaming and crying and holding onto her jersey as tightly as I could and trying to let her know not to leave me and that this was not a safe place and don't leave them, but not being able to communicate that in a way that she would understand. I remember a sense of betrayal and being alone in the world for the first time as here was someone who was my rock, my anchor, and I couldn't make her understand and she left me there. And that feeling of aloneness has been quite pervasive through most of my life. Psychotherapist Sarah Crane saw some of these behavioural issues. I'm thinking there were two, at least, who stopped being able to sleep on their own. A couple of them, they had to sleep on top of their mothers to be able to feel safe at night. You know, to me, that's pretty extreme. And so there were a lot of things like that. And they were very anxious, very scared. Could those... Um, those things you've seen, you know, the, the cleanliness or, or this being scared, being compounded, I guess, by having gone through those kind of processes? I think it's always a risk. And I know a couple of families that I saw, they chose not to allow their children to be complainants. And I completely supported them, which made me very unpopular with the police, I think. But never mind about that. <laughs> In 2000, one father told the Dominion newspaper that he sought help for his daughter months before charges against Peter Ellis were laid. He said it was through pictures she drew that the abuse was revealed. Bart's parents also noticed some concerning behaviour before the interview process had even begun. In another Dominion Post article in 2003, they recalled a dinner where Bart put a fork into his carrots and said, quote, this looks just like a big fat penis that you put in your mouth. When asked if they jumped on the abuse bandwagon, whether they were too eager to believe the worst, Bart's father says the opposite was true. And we've used actors again to give all the complainants who spoke out in this article a voice. When he did finally start telling us what had happened, I kept saying, are you sure about that? I didn't really want to believe him. Bart was 17 when he spoke to the Dominion Post. I would have been happy to never talk about the abuse ever again. I want to forget it, but I'm sick of being called a liar. And if I don't say anything, Peter Ellis will keep going around saying he's innocent and more people will believe him. And while bits of his interviews back in 1992 sound fantastical, Bart's adamant he's telling the truth. The Dominion Post journalist Lindley Boniface specifically asked whether it's the memory of the abuse that frightens him or the memory of being told he was abused. Bart doesn't hesitate. I remember lots of it, he says. I stand by everything I said when I was little. I didn't make anything up. But back then I believed everything I was told. Now I can make more sense of it. For example, I was told I was put down a trapdoor. 
Now I think it was just a laundry chute with cushions at the bottom. But when you're a little kid, you think adults are always telling you the truth. 11 years after her first claims, 17-year-old Kari spoke to the Dom Post in that same interview as Bart. In it, she's very clear her disclosures weren't incorporated information. She echoes her mother's point. How on earth could she know about this stuff unless it had happened to her? How would a five-year-old know about ejaculation? My parents had never talked about that to me. I was able to describe it because of what Peter Ellis did to me, not because anyone had told me about it. It's bullshit that we were told what to say. The parents had nothing to do with what we said. All my parents ever said to me is that I should tell the truth. His sentiments are echoed by the complainant who spoke to the Herald in 2022. Certainly the claim about being led by parents, that's it's not my experience of things. I had some very good incentives not to disclose. I was told that my parents would be killed if I told anyone, that they would either be turned into paper and put on a bonfire or taken to the dump or turned into gherkins and eaten. And I guess even then, a sense of shame, a, a sense that somehow this was dirty and taboo to talk about it. Bart's testimony, in particular, has been pulled apart over the years because he went from saying nothing to describing some of the most extreme and bizarre things. Victoria University sociologist Professor Mike Hill has studied the transcripts of the children in this case, but he has also looked at other international cases where there are unfounded claims of ritual abuse. Children often follow a pattern. In the first interviews, they will often deny anything happened. So that they'll say, no, it, it, it didn't, he didn't abuse me, he didn't do any of that. And then they get to a middle section where they start saying things about poos and wheeze, which is what happened in, in, in the Christchurch case. Uh, and then finally they, they go off into fantasy land and start talking about flying on elephants and, and uh, totally fantastic um, uh, dream uh, events. But Bart has a simple response to that. Of course we didn't say much at our first interview, would you? I didn't want to say anything to anyone I didn't trust. I was real scared of Peter Ellis. Now, we're going to take you a little bit of a diversion here, away from the civic crash, and pop along to another preschool in the area. Bear with us, because while we're at a different crash, you will recognise some of the names. At the beginning of 1992, Ms Magnolia moved her son Geoffrey to a different daycare. Now we're not going to name the new crash, you know, for reasons that will become clear. And we're sticking with the same pseudonyms for Geoffrey, the boy who said, I don't like Peter's black penis, and his mother, Ms Magnolia. According to the book A City Possessed, the staff at the new preschool were aware of what Geoffrey and his mother had been through, and they were really supportive. And initially all went well, but as the year progressed, Ms Magnolia became worried a gay worker there was actually the Robert named in the circle incident. By the end of 1992, Ms Magnolia had laid an official police complaint against this new teacher. What happens next is almost like a parallel universe. A look at how the civic crash case could have played out if it had been handled differently. 
Again, Geoffrey didn't offer up any information in his official interviews, and again, Ms Magnolia pressured the childcare centre to talk to the other parents. But here's where this case differs. The allegations were kept quiet throughout the initial police inquiries, and without corroborating evidence to push forward, the case was closed. When Ms Magnolia tried to rally parents, spreading the allegations, the detective leading the case advised the head teacher to threaten her with defamation proceedings. And that was it. No arrests, no media, back to business. That teacher from the other childcare centre and I emailed back and forth a few times. Here's what he wrote to me. Alex, I'm reluctant to become involved. I have good friends on both sides of the fence of this experience, and my own thoughts are also divided. I have family who attended the crash as well, so this is not something I can easily discuss. I have a career to maintain in a close-knit ECE, Early Childhood Education Community. I've been made vulnerable in the past and have no need to revisit the trauma of those days. Not that keen to be included. Sorry. Now I've also tracked down the police officer of that particular case. He too, again, didn't want to speak to me on record and wasn't interested in comparing the cases. But he did say to me that he had been involved in the civic crash investigation as well and I got the sense he still believes in Peter Ellis's guilt. He said something along the lines that he'd seen things the public hasn't. You'll remember that after his arrest of March 1992, Peter Ellis was frequently being taken down to the station to watch videos of the children's interviews and to answer questions. He noted what they were saying with horror, but also a kind of sense of hope. So I also knew that that, that kids were saying things about the women and thinking, oh, well, this, this will be the total end of it, you know, because they said it's a, that's, that's even more cod swallow. You know, and, and having seen the rubbish I'd seen being said about them in the interviews, um, and then to find out that I was having sex with Debbie Gillespie on the toilet floor of the crash, you know. Uh, yeah, seriously. And then, all of a sudden, on September 3rd, 1992, the crash was closed. Paula, we've heard from her before, had been working on the crash for about five years by that point. When I spoke with her, it was a day she still remembered well. A locksmith turned up to change the locks and we were all asked to leave the building. It was in the middle of the day. Um, Family said to come get the children. We were told to gather up our things and we were locked out. Um, And that was it. We were... That it was over. The place was shut down. And then it really started to take on a life of its own in terms of the case against Peter. The Civic Crash story was back in the primetime TV news. The playground was deserted today following yesterday's abrupt closure. No detailed explanations been given. For parents, the closure was totally unexpected. It's just uh, stunned us belief more than anything else. Um, it's high-handed, it's, uh, it's just unreasonable. The 13 staff have been suspended. They've basically destroyed 13 lives without, without explanation. The closure of the creche was something Peter Ellis really struggled with. Until then, he'd thought it would all go away. But now it was spiralling out of control. It made me wonder how on earth this ever happened. This is Peter on TV3's 2020 programme. It should never have happened. What happened? That place has been closed down. 
Well, there were good people in that place. Something went wrong. And it was nothing to do with sexual abuse of children. It was to do with people that decided that it had happened. She didn't like it, but after getting over the shock, Paula could see why the council closed the crash. I guess by now they felt that it was such a festering sort of little pit of satanic ritual abuse. Um, and it was all really so dirty and sullied that, you know, it's a, maybe a bit like when <laughs> they discover bodies under a house. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, you know, that house will now have to get torn down and, you know, <laughs> the site cleansed and all that sort of thing. It sort of felt like that to me, that it was like this civic crash now was just such a a sullied, dirty place that, um, you know, close it down and almost board it up. 3ZB News has obtained copies of a damning report on the Civic Child Care Centre. That feeling that the crash was a festering pit, as Paula puts it, was partly due to a new report released by Rosemary Smart. And her report says Alice's personal problems were classic signs of a potential sexual abuser. Now, Rosemary Smart was a psychologist tasked by the Christchurch City Council to review management practices at the crash. She began interviewing staff and others right back in March 1992, about six months before the preschool was closed. The report says childcare workers at the Civic Centre were abysmally ignorant of sexual abuse. Management problems are blamed for the fact that the alleged abuse went undetected. The report says complaints procedures were not clearly understood by staff or parents. It says Alice was able to get away with completely inappropriate behaviour and most staff members eventually just accepted it. The report put the crash case back in the headlines. Ms Smart says staff described Alice as an unstable person who drank heavily. He flaunted his abnormal sex life and talked openly about being sexually abused at the age of eight. A couple of years later, investigative reporter Melanie Reed asked Peter about this. Were you ever sexually interfered with when you were a child? No, I was never sexually interfered with. The report goes on, saying Alice was also rough and unnecessarily punitive. He hung a boy on a fence by his clothing and threw a girl into a chair. Ms Smart said Alice was popular and it was possible parents and staff accepted his outrageous behaviour because he was bisexual and seen as being different. In Christchurch, Amanda Crop. First and foremost, I can tell you categorically that none of us were absolutely blind to seeing sexual abuse. Paula says the smart report was a kick in the teeth. You know, to be made out that we were so incredibly ignorant that all of these things were happening under our noses is just insulting. It's really insulting. We were not that naive or green. And we certainly weren't facilitating opportunities for abuse, and we certainly weren't blind to it. Paula remembers her conversation with Smart. I would say that I was in there for three to five minutes. I remember her being extremely sweet and friendly and nice and, you know, sort of very smiley. And and I remember that vividly because she had rather large teeth. I think we were led to believe that she was coming in through the Christchurch City Council as our employer's 
um, to sort of clarify our procedures and practices and how the centre operated and to almost to, and to some extent to be uh, a support person for us. Paula said many of the staff thought talking to Smart would be an opportunity to clarify some of the things they said to police, which in hindsight they felt might have been taken out of context. Just things like um, hanging the child on the fence and throwing the child into a chair. We had a great big old-fashioned puffy armchair and it was actually a game the children adored. They would stand on a little plinth in front of the big puffy chair and Peter would throw a cushion at them and it would knock them backwards into the chair and they just <laughs> loved it. Um, but uh, I don't ever remember it being a game of fear or tears. Um, I mean, he did things like tarring a treatment, which was, you know, pretending to grab their ears and twizzle and twist, and sometimes he was probably a little bit rough. But he actually wasn't overly punitive. He was pretty kind, really. He, he was into fun and games and hijinks. Sarah Crane, the psychotherapist who counselled some creche families, saw Peter's hijinks differently to Paula. Yes, there was something, and this might have been in the culture there with the other stuff, I don't know, there was something sort of quite mean. Like children said things like, the worst thing was when he pinched my ear really, really hard. And then he laughed. You know, there were those sort of, this, and a couple of children reported, I say reported, that sounds so formal, when they were in their play, they had this sort of play that often they'd, when they're little, you know, they have a special blanket or a special toy that they take with them. And those used to get taken away. And I said to the parents, well, you know, this is this doesn't quite make sense to me because you, children have those kind of things with them so they can feel okay, feel safe, feel good, be, be all right about being away from you. And just, there were just sort of things like that that were quite disturbing. Rosemary Smart didn't think this was simple hijinks either. I spoke to her a few times for this podcast, and I remember her being very likable, but she struggled with my accent. She agreed to talk to me, but then changed her mind. She said to me it's been years since she wrote the report, and she didn't really feel like going back over it again. But she did say that she remembers there were many things she was told about the crash that just felt wrong to her. This is a clip from the 1995 TVNZ assignment programme where Rosemary Smart explains why she was concerned about what was going on at the crash. Such as um, comments that were made about the children in their hearing, about the size of their genitals, um, about their bums and their tits. The fact that one of the staff members told me that she had seen Peter Ellis in the children's toilet with his fly undone. And when she thought back about the incident, she remembered, in fact, that there was a little boy in there and she remembered the child's name. And the thing I think that aroused most of my concern was that people were telling me these things in a very matter-of-fact tone of voice, as if they were quite okay. And to me, they weren't. And so I really had to question my own values about this thing. But I know that the two days that I did my interviewing, I went home and felt that I really wanted to have a bath or a shower afterwards. 
The Smart Report was not without its flaws. In part, it blatantly assumed Peter Ellis is guilty, even though it was written months before the trial. She also quotes controversial research by sociologist David Finkelhor, which highlights the involvement of women in ritual sexual abuse. We were all quite shocked and surprised and felt that it was very out of context when the report came out and it was incredibly damning. We didn't see it coming, we were blindsided and it certainly didn't seem to any of us that that was the picture we'd portrayed. But then we had spoken very openly as well. Do you think in retrospect that there were things where one should have, could have reined in Peter or where where the practices could have been slightly different? Yes, definitely. Things that were happening there would seem abhorrent now and professionally unacceptable. Um, However, I think that was a journey that the whole professional sector was on. And and do you think that report had an impact in the closure? Yes, I think I think it was one of the driving forces. One of the police officers involved in the case later told author Lindley Hood that they were given a copy of the report and that he was certain it had been a factor in the decision to close the crash. To recap, the report painted a picture of the crash as a place rife with sexual innuendo and of the other teachers as being willing to turn a blind eye to the worst of Peter's behaviour. And that got the police to wondering whether the other teachers could be involved. Well, Paula reckons it's no surprise the women were dragged into it. Well, those evidential interviews were relentless. The only time the evidential interviews actually stopped for a child was when they ran out of people they could name and stories they could come up with within the civic crash. And so they started disclosing about um, the police because they were having a huge amount of contact with the police in their lives. You know, they were going around to their homes and dealing with their parents and things. And they had started naming police or um, some of the actual (laughs) social workers who were doing the evidential interviews started to get named. (laughs) So, of course, that's when it was like, oh, well, this has obviously gone too far and these children have done far too many disclosures, so we'll shut it all down. But the net was already cast. As we ticked over into October 1992, nearly a year after the initial complaint, the police launched the next phase of the investigation. I so clearly remember the day there was that that knock that detectives have on the door, you know, as there's no one else knocks on a door like that. And now it wasn't just Peter Ellis under suspicion anymore. In the next episode, the case fully blows up. Seven o'clock in the morning, and I think I was asleep, and opened the door to Neville Jenkins with the search warrant, and a whole team of other people, cars down the street, you know, and all these people in overalls. And I thought, what is going on? It was really bizarre. And that was the moment I thought, you're going to arrest me. Peter Ellis did not act alone. It was an organised and systematic method of abuse. 
One of the allegations that was made against me was murder. He stormed off in a bowel rage and um, I was dumped and left there and then taken by one of the policemen to the, um, the police cells. My whole mouth went dry and my body just trembled. I had a lot of faith in the, in the police, like most people. I thought there probably was something to it. Thanks for listening to Conviction, the Christchurch Civic Crash Case, hosted by Ellie Jones and Alexander Beezer. Conviction was made by Monsoon Pictures International, with support from RNZ and New Zealand On Air. The series was written and produced with help from Aliki Siantolis, Liz Garten and Tim Watkin. Blair Stagpole was the audio engineer. Voice actors in this episode were Jeremy Ansell, Blair Stagpole, Katie Fitzgerald and Leonard Powell. Thanks go out to RNZ's commissioning team, Kay Elmers and Tim Burnell, for giving this project the green light, and to Hingyi Kong for designing the webpage. And to Nataonga Sound and Vision for help with some of the archival audio, as well as MediaWorks, Discovery, Getty Images, TVNZ, and the Livingston Family Trust. The key image for the series is courtesy of North and South. Conviction can be found on the podcast page of the RNZ website. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Follow the series so you don't miss an episode. 